The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode was made possible with support from our Equity and Grantmaking Impact Group. This is a group of funders who believe that how we do philanthropy is as critical as what we fund when it comes to moving forward on our commitments to racial justice and equity. For those new to this podcast, our choice of topics and guests are informed by a belief that different worldviews drive the creation of different kinds of systems. Our more modern Western worldview has birthed systems that we're coming to see were never designed to serve all people and communities equally. More holistic indigenous ways of understanding the world birth systems that are more intentional in how they honor, center, and serve human beings and our planet overall. The conventional approach to philanthropy that most of us engage with is very much grounded in a modern Cartesian-Newtonian way of seeing the world. It was birthed out of the unrestrained approach to capitalism that drives America's economy and tax code. In general, this approach is driven by the values and missions of philanthropic organizations who hold most of the power when it comes to identifying and evaluating the work of the organizations they support. Many of the conversations related to equitable grant making happening inside of philanthropic institutions today are aimed at tinkering with aspects of conventional philanthropy. This plays out through efforts to better engage community partners, reduce application and reporting requirements, award multi-year grants, or provide general operating support. However, for the most part, these tweaks happen without fundamentally shifting power dynamics and authority. Power and decision-making still rest with small groups of people, including boards and program staff, who set priorities, drive giving strategies, and usually have the final say when it comes to awarding dollars and determining metrics of success. So what would it look like to do philanthropy in a radically different way? Our guests today work for an organization that has been exploring and living out responses to that question for five years. Christina Engel and Tiffany Johnson are the chief executive and chief strategy officers for Magic Cabinet, a philanthropic organization that champions communities' work by partnering with nonprofits and other philanthropists to achieve the nonprofit's missions. They do this by providing long term capacity building grants, access to peer networks, and advocating for the broader adoption of collaborative, trust based philanthropic practice. Over the last five years, Magic Cabinet has worked in Seattle's Puget Sound and San Francisco's Bay Area communities to assemble 21 Magic Cabinet cohorts. Each cohort comprises three nonprofit partners who collectively steward funds of approximately $2.5 million over five years. These funds are invested to support the members of that cohort in advancing their work. 
Magic Cabinet's team spends a lot of its time forming and supporting each cohort. They rely on a combination of quantitative data indicators of community health and investment, extensive community conversations, and intentional relationship building. The nonprofits in each cohort cater to different kinds of community needs, ranging from improving education and workforce development, to addressing homelessness, to supporting the arts. What draws and keeps them together is less the content of their work and more a commitment to serve each other in being the best that they can be, doing that in authentic and honest ways. As both of our guests note, it takes time and trust to shift from the competitive and paternalistic muscles that most nonprofits operate with. They've been trained to constantly adjust their work to meet the stated interests of funders and find it hard to believe that Magic Cabinet defines its success as their success. Join me for a conversation with Christina and Tiffany about what it takes to build relational trust, the lessons they've learned in their five years of community-driven work, and their best hopes for the field of philanthropy. Welcome, Christina and Tiffany. It's so great to have you with me today. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you for having us. Great. So I want to start and would love to start with you, um, Tiffany. Our personal journeys, where we come from, our stories always shape who we are, the issues we work on. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey and how that informs the work that you spend time on today? Yes, absolutely. I started my career as a youth organizer back in the day, many moons ago. And as a youth organizer, I was invited often to speak in different philanthropic forums or backgrounds to help inform the work that philanthropists were doing at the time. So often I told my story and that's how I really engaged with philanthropists at that time. I had really beautiful experiences, but I also had really concerning experiences, a lot of condescending language and behaviors and things that I had. I'm like, this is what you have to do to tell your story or access funds is that you have to experience people degrading you or whatever the experiences were at the time. And and so I was like, not sure what I felt about philanthropy in that moment. But later on, I became an advisor for a national funding group. And I started off as a young professional and I stayed there for many years. And I got to advise and support many different philanthropists and got to really interact with other program officers and folks in the field and learn of their journey and the struggles that they were having and how they were trying to do the work. Very passionate, but they really struggled with that work. And they would say, it's hard working for someone that doesn't want to budge. And, and so I really got, oh, maybe it's deeper than I'm thinking. It's not just a group of pretentious people, but there's these systems that are in place and so that are hindering them to be as impactful as they want to be. And so I think in that work, really on that national level, is when I really started to see where the system was frayed and there was opportunities to come in and help and understand um, how do we get philanthropy to do better so they are more impactful. And that there are really meaningful people in the field that want to really create change and that there's barriers to doing that. I'm just curious because you jumped in with being an organizer. Was there something about your family background, your family story that kind of led you into that activism work? 
Yeah, what's very interesting is I started with tobacco, like making sure young people were not having not having access to tobacco. And I didn't have a really connection there. And I was like, why am I doing advocacy for this when I don't have that story to tell? However, because I had a child welfare background and going into foster care, I saw there were other avenues to helping improve the foster care system because I had siblings who were still in foster care. And so that really helped. I I saw the connection right away, became passionate in, in that journey and spent the next 28 years of my life focusing on trying to improve the child welfare system. Through that journey, though, I had to engage in philanthropy and I wanted to take some of those same principles that I learned from that and how and apply that to philanthropy. Um, and one of those is really listening to people with lived experiences. And that was one thing that philanthropy was really lacking. Hmm. Well, thank you. It's great to have you. Christina, same question to you. Yeah, thanks. So my work background, quite frankly, is bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) My first career, I was a professional ballerina. And then when that when that ended for me, went back to school, worked in museums for a bit. And then the 2008 economic housing bubble happened and all this museum jobs seemed to implode. And I actually found a job at a, of all places, a video game company that was interestingly hiring for a position that was very similar to what I was doing inside of museums, which was really focused on community engagement and communications and sharing the things that were being explored inside of the museum. It was a different environment in the video game world, but it's same type of community development and engagement and communications aspects, which was actually the, the company where I met our founder of Magic Cabinet. From there, I rolled out and did a, a number of startups, really early team members and helping to build teams and create focus, launching products. And just about the time that I was feeling very burnt out in the San Francisco, Silicon Valley cycle of startups and busting, I was looking for to do something new. And that's about Coincidentally, the time that our founder was starting his foundation and asked me to come on very early on in order to help build the team and kind of help set some of the early priorities and direction, start to explore his main directive, which was to how to get community involved in decision making at every level. And so while that's a lot of different things that kind of ping pong about around, I would say the thing that's very consistent throughout is that I am very interested and committed to building things and sharing things, whether that be as a quarter court of ballet member or as part of a startup team or as a philanthropic team member inside of Magic Cabinet. Building and sharing things are uh, something that I am very passionate about and through line that I, I draw through my career. Thanks. Thanks both for, for starting us off with that. So I want to move to Magic Cabinet. So first of all, I love the name. When I first heard it, I had so many images in my head. But tell me a little bit about the history of Magic Cabinet and the work that you do, and also a little bit about what you would say makes it unique in the philanthropic space. I, I can start with that. So Magic Cabinet as a just like the root phrase of it came from our founder and his experience as a young man with arcade games, never seen them before and called them the magic cabinet. So that's where the word comes from. However, what I will say is that a cabinet can be a physical thing. It also can be a group of people. 
And it is, it's our philosophy. And you can see this kind of um, exemplified uh, every layer of our work inside of Magic Cabinet that when groups of people come together and they're committed, magic happens. And so we're looking to recreate that magic and, the, and bring those groups of people together as a staff inside of Magic Cabinet with one another as we help to set our internal priorities and decision-making processes and our own lines of work, as well as with engaging with groups of people in identifying community, who has been under invested in, where is the most opportunity for growth and impact. And then one step higher, who are the decision makers inside of a community who can help us identify who are doing the most impactful work inside of community. And then once we get there, who are the actual leaders and people responsible for delivering these incredibly impactful programs inside of community? How, how can we bring them together and how can we empower them to make decisions? Decisions so that the work that they're doing is truly authentic and truly reflective of who they are and their expertise and their passions and what their community needs and wants. I was struck that you didn't start with saying our mission and vision is X, our focus areas are this, and we find organizations. And you started instead with this idea of community and bringing people together. So I want to draw a picture for listeners about what your work looks like. So could you describe the evolution of a relationship that you have right now with a community where you're working? And then I've got some follow-up questions like specifically about how you started. But yeah, tell us a little bit about a relationship you have right now. Yeah, so right now our work is is focused in the greater Puget Sound region around Seattle, Washington, as well as in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. We chose those two areas initially because we have some personal roots there, as well as the fact that both are really interesting profiles in metropolitan areas where there's extreme wealth and there's also extreme need, the two existing right side by side. We're looking at as far as geographically, what are the different types of indicators uh, that might point to us and say, this is a community that's been underinvested in. It's things like graduation rates, um, percentages of public school students having free or reduced lunch, pollution levels, uh, transportation needs, highly segregated communities, things along those lines. Once we take a look at the data there, overlap them on each other, we it would be almost like like a heat map of, oh, these are the zip codes that have been under underfunded, underinvested in. And so that's essentially where we start. We look at those communities first, and then the relationship building happens. Then that's reaching out to people that are figureheads of those communities. Oftentimes it's people in local government, it's leaders of really long, really large kind of keystone nonprofits, it's local business owners, it's all sorts of people that we know are making big impact inside of their community. Those relationships then we'll start asking them questions about who are the organizations that are doing the most impactful work. We'll start looking there and introducing ourselves on that level. So we try to combine all of those different things where we're trying to identify a particular community to go into. And in that process of talking and learning, exploring, we're meeting amazing people along the way and that are leaders who may not necessarily quite fit our portfolio, but they want to be involved. And we try to snatch those people up (laughs) whenever we can (laughs) so they can help us and be inform our process, help us select nonprofits. 
And those folks range from philanthropists, small business owners. Most of the time, they're really from that Pacific neighborhood, which is even more beautiful. So we have a long community conversation with lots of different people involved in a single community. And at the end of that process, we have three organizations who are then part of a, a magic cabinet cohort that is to it's not 100% this way, but it's typically a five-year commitment from the foundation to the organizations of funding their capacity building needs to with the specific dollar amount of $2.5 million available over that five-year term. There's no, it's not necessarily divided in three. It's a much more dynamic process where the cohort members come together on a quarterly basis over that five years and present and approve or provide feedback on capacity building grant proposals. And so that could be anything from hiring new staff. It could be a new data management system. It could be a HR overhaul. It could be any number of things. And with, within the cohort, that grant proposal is presented and the other cohort members vote on if they want to fund it or not. If it's funded, then it comes out of that $2.5 million that Magic Cabinet has already set, set aside. And if for whatever reason it's not funded, there's feedback given and with the intentionality of it, of it getting funded eventually. And so like a very specific example that I can share is that one organization was very heavily reliant on government grants and contracts. And the feedback and direction from the other two cohort members was for that organization to uh, build out a stronger fundraising department so that they could get more flexible funds because notoriously government funds and contracts are very restrictive and just a nightmare to track. Um, and so hearing that, they then came up with a proposal of somebody, of a new employee that was a, essentially, it was two positions in one. It was a major donor um, fundraiser, as well as a marketing and communications person. That grant was ultimately not voted. It, it, it was not funded because the cohort felt that was too hard of a position to hire for, that anybody that was coming into that position was essentially being set up to fail because they couldn't actually be successful at both things and it needed to be two separate positions. And so while that specific proposal was not granted, what was granted was the funds to go out to that organization immediately for it to be a position that was either the major fundraiser or the marketing person. And then the expectation that at the next meeting, they would come back with another proposal that looked very similar that was for the other half of it. That's great. That is a super helpful example. And when you put these cohorts together, is it ever the case that they end up doing work together or that part of what ends up happening synergistically is that they end up partnering or doing work together in ways that they might not have been because they become more familiar with each other's work and or do they are there instances where they bring in other partners in the community to do work in a way that might not have been happening is that part of so what happens inside these cohorts so we also would be very clear that there's no expectations. We have no mm -hmm. pressures For on sure. them to collaborate or do project work together. 
They do bring it up often though. Can we do a project? However, what I've experienced in my cohorts is they share space together. They do overlap the resources that they have. They're referring this program to that program now. And can we do our staff training at your venue or we're making smoothies over here. Can we bring them to your team? And right. So we are seeing them engage in ways they probably would not have get engaged before this. And I would say the most recent experience is our new, one of our newest cohorts in the Bay Area. They did a combined press release together that mm-hmm. we did not prompt. And they just told us they were doing it. And we we're like, oh, that's exciting. So we see that they are starting to collaborate in ways and just and even in, in deeper ways than we would have imagined. They're not even just doing a project. They're like really sharing resources with each other, what feels right to them. And we sometimes hear about it way after the fact. (laughs) And yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And what's your directive? So in other words, what is it that you're looking to do when you decide you're going to go into San Francisco, let's say, or a neighborhood in San Francisco? What what is it that your founder or that as an organization, what's the impact that you're trying to have? At the biggest level, so this is actually a bit of a sticking point for many people working in philanthropy to try to understand our work. On on one hand, we're very used to seeing foundations with a very specific issue focus of we want to alleviate child hunger by 2030. Amazing initiative. Our initiative and our mission is for philanthropy and nonprofits to have better relationships with one another so that the nonprofits can succeed in whatever their mission is. As a human, of course I want to see every child fed. I also want to see people having safe housing over their head and our environment to be safe and our water to be clean and everything in between. We look around and we see the world and I don't I don't feel satisfied with it. I know that we can do better. And and in order for us to be better, we really need all of our nonprofit partners to be successful in ways that are really reflective of them and, and the people that they're serving. And our directive is to not come in and have an agenda and say, here's what I want to see in the world. And here's, and I'm going to try to find the organizations that fit into whatever that vision is of what I think is, is better. Our directive is to go in and to build relationship with individuals and with communities and organizations that are serving their communities, because those are the people that really know what's going on. Those are the people that have the most creative and impactful ideas of how to intersect into a system that's not working and serving everybody in the way that it should. Those are the people that really need the resources and they need partners who are really going to see them as partners and the experts in what they're doing. And that's our mission. That's our directive inside of Magic Cabinet. So that's, and I want to underscore that, right? Because it is so different, right? Most places to your point say, we have an idea of what should happen. And now we're going to find the organizations that are doing what we think should happen, as opposed to what I'm hearing you describe, which is you do identify places that you feel have been underinvested in through your heat map. You then go in and the point is, who's doing work? What work are they doing? And whatever it is, you're investing in them because presumably what they're doing, if others in their community say they are the ones who are having impact, then that's the impact you want to support. So it sounds like you define your success if the nonprofits and the organizations you support are successful in the work that they want to do. And that's it, it is really, I can see why people have a hard time sort of understanding what it is that you're doing. Even our nonprofits, uh-huh. when they come in, they struggle. 
Mm -hmm. they're like, what do you want us to do? We're like, we just want you to be great. And how do we support you in that? And you feeling great. And so we say, our mission is your mission, basically. And it takes a while to get them to go. We're not here to satisfy you all. No, (laughs) not at all. Our goal is to make sure you have the tools and resources so you can do the impactful work that you need to do. And it takes a minute for them to really grasp that. They're still trying to be like, are we making you happy? Are we doing the things? We're like, I don't know. Are you? I don't know. (laughs) Only you can answer that. (laughs) That's awesome. And I want to come back to that, right? Because it's a whole different way of working. But I am curious as we're on the topic, do you have in your mind just a great story of a nonprofit where people were really struggling and then they got it, like something clicked and what they are doing now or your relationship with them now is just an illustration of what happens when you can get over that hump of it's not about my definition of your success. It's your definition of your success. I'm curious if you have an example or a story to share. I I will say in my experience in working with our nonprofits directly, there, there is a scenario where they're doing things that they think that a funder wants, what the other funders want it. And so they're submitting things in a certain type of way, but the joy of having this sort of community, having three nonprofits together and community together, they get to see how other people are doing things. And so they were seeing that the other nonprofits are being a little bit more bold in their ask and how they thought about things. And then they'd come to me and be like, that's okay. We could do that. And I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't you? It's your group. Like, it's your thing. It's not our thing. And then they, they, when they clicked for them, Next thing, they were starting to submit things differently. And one thing was about a budget that they didn't know they could submit budgets a different kind of way that included all the cost. And they were like, well, funders don't let us do that. So how are they allowed to do that? And I was like, who told you you couldn't do it? Oh, I guess you never said that. So why? yeah, then I said, well, do it. And so they started presenting their budgets in a way that included every cost. And they were like, this has been so helpful. We didn't even know. And they said, I said, yeah, you should start telling other funders to do that too. So what were the things that you were noticing that nonprofits weren't including that were actual costs of their work that because of how philanthropy is done right now or grant making is done, they weren't getting money for and therefore they were doing things without being funded for it? What were those things? I think a really easy example, I guess it's also important to while we are mission agnostic, the two things that really differentiate Magic Cabinet, as far as our grant making methodology is concerned, is that we're a high, we're a participatory grant maker. So a cohort of nonprofits come together and um, have access to a pool of funds over a five year period, and they meet quarterly and present grant proposals to each other. And the ones that are approved by the cohort members are then funded by that pool of funds that the foundation has allocated for their use. The other thing that's really important to, to distinguish is that we focus our grant making on capacity building. By doing that, we can bring organizations that are serving different issues, all affecting a similar community, and can create a space for that leadership to really have honest conversations with one another and talk about the things that are working inside of the, the business aspect of their organization and not necessarily the program delivery. Additionally, um, thankfully, we're starting to see it be a more common um, type of grant, but capacity building is something that is always very typically underfunded inside of organizations. There's a lot there. 
in relation to what Tiffany was saying is like, oh, we didn't know that we could ask for that. But so with that said, like a capacity building grant that is very common for us is that we fund lots of new positions, lots of development directors or admin people, finance people. We, we do we do lots of pay raises, just unilateral across the board, like in order for people to keep their staff and to pay anything close to a living wage. We, we everybody up to, to what might even be close to living, ideally beyond that. But using just the, the, the single position example, typically people will just put the salary. This person will make X salary a year. But the real cost of that is far greater. What are their benefits? What are the payroll taxes? What kind of equipment are they going to need? Do you need a bigger office? What's the overhead of just having them be in that space? What type of software licenses are they going to use? Does your benefits include dependents as well? Do you have a 401k plan? The very full cost of bringing in an employee is something that we really push for because it's Mm -hmm. not just their salary. It's all of those things. That's great. That's super helpful. And I was going to ask you, like when we talk about capacity building, and I love the examples you gave, because I think it is a term that we're hearing more and more. But like with many things, there are terms that are used, but I don't always know that we unpack exactly what's in them. And I want to shift. We're hearing a lot about equitable grant making practices and equitable grant making. When you think about what it means to do equitable grant making from your lens, the magic cabinet lens, what are core principles and values that need to drive it? And in what ways does your work embody those principles and values? So this is a tricky one um, because oftentimes I feel like in our sector, when people are asking that question, what they're really asking is, which communities of color are you investing in? And for us, because we are mission agnostic, that's not really a question that we have an easy answer to. What we can say, though, which is that as a funder, we have this incredible privilege when we come into community and there's all sorts of different dynamics that um, help to influence that and to, to prop that up. The most equitable that we could possibly be is to have the people who are working with community and living in those communities and thriving in those communities make the decisions and not us. And so with that said, equity and flexibility and compassion and, oh my gosh, what are our other values. It's terrible. We're making decisions based off of data and what we're seeing. We're also building relationships that are intended to be long-term. All of these things are really coming into play and to create a uh, equitable grant-making environment where community voice is systematically, through the systems that we're actually building inside of our foundation, where community voice is by design larger than our own. And that to me, is truly equitable. It's partners coming together to help solve a problem where the more experienced one, in this particular case, is the nonprofit. And we as a foundation are coming in as a partner with resources to share and to help and to help accelerate their work, not change their work. But I want to push on that just a little bit because, Mm -hmm. and 
we talked about this idea of like new muscles, new ways of being, and yet we all live structurally in a capitalist society where scarcity, where competition, where pitting organizations and groups against one another is the norm. And so even when you go into community, the community is not monolithic and some actors and players have more power and they've had it historically and they don't want to give it up. So I'm curious, like, how do you, as you center community and understanding that the players within communities have been taught to behave in certain ways inside of our constructs, how do you engage with that? And how do you help? And it's not that it's your work to do this, but how do you create the circumstances in which the community can come together differently and maybe moving beyond some of the dynamics that may have existed that aren't necessarily the most functional, healthy ones that really allow the best work to be done. Yeah. And I actually would say that it is our work in order to help create those conditions in which community is not only heard, but advocated for and supported in in real ways that they can depend on. In in our case, it's a five-year cohort term, but it's also uh, beyond that. It's the relationships that they're building with their other cohort members who are all who are very much members of their community and are going to be there for much longer than the five-year terms of a cohort. And so the really quick answer is that it's hard, right? Like we don't get to come into every single one, every situation, and be fresh as a daisy. Like we have all sorts of experiences and expectations and pressures that we're bringing into any relationship, whether it be a personal relationship or a work relationship or funder-grantee relationship. And I think the honest truth is that you just have to name it. And to the example that Tiffany gave earlier, I would say a a good chunk of the first year of our five-year cohort meetings are just continually reinforcing, it's not what we want, it's what you need. It's not what we want, it's what you need. What do you think will actually get this well-funded? We actually are not the ones to be asking. It's actually your community. It's your cohort members. And I'm very happy to give some ideas if that would be helpful. But what do you need and what do you really actually need in order to make it successful? Not what you think you can get by with or what you think would be able to fly underneath the radar of a very selective grant process. Ask for what you need. Reinforce it. And then really just as a funder, we just have to continue to live it. The second we come in and say, oh, actually, as the Magic Cabinet representative of this cohort, I have decided that is no longer a good idea. It throws it all away. And so, yeah, I think it's just hard. (laughs) It's very hard. I I wanted to add 30 years of nonprofit life and all the drama and dynamics that go on. That's definitely something when we started this that I was like, how are we going to navigate that? Because I was very much in a niche so I knew who the players were. I knew who the backstabbers were. Like I knew all the people, right, in a certain community. But when you're going to new community, you don't really know those dynamics. And so, but I think we have to own own that we can do the best that we can. And what we do is create the space. We have the dialogues. We try to navigate through government systems, nonprofit. Like we try to talk to all the folks to try to pull the pieces together as best as we can. But we are also very open and honest that we're not perfect. We don't know that we're completely eliminating. It is hard work. 
But I, what I can say, what I have seen, though, when we go into new communities, that people are self-identifying at times now. And they're saying, we think we might be competitors with them and we'll remove ourselves from a process since they're in the process, right? So we're seeing that happen a little bit and we're like, oh, that's interesting um, because we don't want people to feel as competitors. So that's definitely something we're still grappling with hmm. is how to, it's just, it's going to be ongoing work for us to continue to manifest this the safer environment to eliminate competition as much as possible. But I think it's great when we create space to bring them together and they self-select themselves out. I think that does say something, which we don't want them to do that. But I think they're like having these conversations with each other. They're saying, maybe we should be in it, not you. And it's, oh, that's fascinating. We created this space and now they're talking about it. And mm-hmm. and so I think that says something. And we yeah. still have a long way to go. And are there particular strategies that you found to be really useful? Because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about people who are listening to this who would be like, I have no idea how to even begin this. What do you mean? You bring people together and you just put them together and somehow it's going to... Are there strategies and tools? Is there There's something about this first year, let's say, that you're going into it and you're creating space in a very particular way. I assume you're organizing and thinking about the work that you do, the time that you spend let's unpack that a little bit. What is it that you do in that first year? And it may seem like it's going slow to go fast, but it certainly sounds like that's part of your strategy. What do you do in that first year? Does that look like? I mean, in that regard, I think it's actually not rocket science. Anybody who has hosted a meeting, you put together an agenda, you have, you make sure that you have your points that you need to really get across. You have your areas that you definitely want to have some flexibility in and you set some expectations. And then if there's a really important point that you need to make, you say it a number of times. We do it in our personal lives, right? When we're negotiating decisions, when there's two different perspectives, whether it be with a partner or a friend, the way that you approach those conversations is very human. And that's what we're really trying to bring to the environment professional enough that we do have an agenda and we have things that we want people to learn and and to understand about the process and also to make sure that we hit the things that we need to do as far as like your grant presentations and devotes and things along those lines and the fiduciary responsibilities and making sure that people know this, that, and the other thing. But at the end of the day, we're really just hosting a space for people to build relationship with one another. And... It can be overwhelming for sure. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that it's easy. In fact, it's quite hard, but it's something that as humans, we know how to do. Actually, I'm not sure that we do, right? This idea of being in community with one another, the idea that we know how to be in community with people who are different than us or whose life experiences make us uncomfortable or whose stories make us uncomfortable. And I I just want to push on that because I think if we're not honest about the fact that maybe we don't have those muscles because a lot of the institutions maybe that used to teach us that are gone. And maybe if I didn't have a mother who knew how to teach me how to host or to create a space, I didn't learn because where would I learn it? So, and I don't mean to labor this point, but again, for folks who are listening, and it goes back to this idea of muscles. So if I had to ask you, like, what muscles did you have to build to do this work differently? Maybe you just hire for it, but are there muscles that you could name right now? Oh, when I started doing this, I did this and I gradually had to learn how to do something else. 
Or is there something that you see in the form of some of your partners where you see them moving from one set of muscles to another set of muscles? I think that you are absolutely right to press on that because it's, it is not like an innate thing. And in some regards it is, but the work at the foundation is to create the space, which sets the expectations. And so it's not as if there's just three random people who all happen to be working in the nonprofit sector who just meet at a party and start talking. These are folks who have, you know, are the beneficiaries of a long community driven process where we are identifying work that they're doing um, that is overlapping with each other in very interesting ways. And so just to, to use a specific example, we have one cohort where one of the organizations provides safe housing um, in culturally specific ways. Another organization is very focused on identifying middle schoolers and mentoring them through college graduation as the first college graduates of their family. And then a third is focused on providing essentially business training for low-income individuals who are looking to launch food businesses. And while those are all very different missions, it is not hard to imagine a single family touching every single one of those organizations. And the fact that all of these organizations are focused in a specific community, whether their mission explicitly says it or not, they are invested in the success of these other organizations. And so that's the table that we're setting. That's how people are coming together. It's not, it's certainly not random. And our work inside of those conversations is to help identify people that help identify that doors are open and there is knowledge and there is money. <laughs> and that's what we bring as the foundation is we bring the space for that conversation to be held. And we, and quite frankly, we bring the money. <laughs> that's what we do. I, I think that we also, though, we're learning right alongside with our nonprofits. And that's another thing that we do. And so they they feel invested in our work too, because we launched, we're only five years old. And so we launched together with them. And so we're very transparent. I think that's one of the things that we have to, that I'm not used to um, funders doing is being transparent about what we're learning, what we're failing at, what we didn't get, and being open and honest about that. I think that's been really important in this journey, in addition to the fact that they're all serving the same families. We bring them together. We, we have we have happy hour with them. Like we spend a, a, a stream amount of time with them. That's not just work related, but building relationship, which I think is another thing that we had to learn. In turn, we bring them together too in that space so that they're not feeling the stressors of the world. They're just getting to know each other before they even make it into the cohort. Um, and so we do that through meeting greets where they're meeting the other nonprofits. And so that would be two of the things I think we do is the transparency, which they're not used to. They're like, they feel like they know all our business and we're okay with that, but they're on the journey with us. And I think that's important to be able to do that and building that trust and the relationship piece of it. And then helping them really understand how they're all weaved together as adding on to what Christina said is another piece we continually have to do for them to start to coalesce together is understanding that if I fail, we're all failing the same families, we're all supporting the family or we're all failing the family, but we could do this together or not. So I think those are two big components pieces of the muscles that we have to flex when thinking about this work. 
what would be the hope that you have for 20 years from now in terms of what was seeded because people are eating together and breaking bread together and getting to know each other and building different muscles for being together? What, what, would, the, what would that be for you? I mean, I think the biggest goal is that we wouldn't even be here. <laughs> the foundation isn't needed because this is all happening organically and all the philanthropists and people of wealth are, are well distributed and we wouldn't be here. That would be like the ideal situation. I do want to state one of the first things that I experienced that I felt like, oh, we're on the right track is when we first engaged with nonprofits, they didn't know who we were and they, you could see them be so nervous trying to talk to us, which just felt weird to us because we're not used to people being nervous talking to us. And then we got on a video chat with them and they were like, wait a minute. They were so bold and they were like, you're us. You understand us. Like we could just talk like, yeah, of course you can just talk, right? They weren't used to that kind of dynamics. And I'm, and I think I've seen that, like that one little experience grow exponentially over time as we continue to try to get things right. And so hopefully in five years when we meet people, they don't feel that nervousness, right? Or in 20 years from now that they're reaching out to us and just telling us what needs to be done, right? I think that would be the more ideal situation. Currently, we are an invitation only. We're reaching out to folks. They're always nervous. But hopefully there's a more collaborative approach in the future where we're all in this together and we see the needs before they arise. And they're like, hey, we can tap this, that. Here's Magic Cabinet. Y'all need to do this. Like it's more of that kind of collaborative approach where we're still leading the movement here. And I think there, in 20 years from now, we wouldn't be the leaders. We'd be the ones just in the middle <laughs> with everybody else. So I, I love that. And there's a couple of things I wanted to um, build on specifically what Tiffany just said. That that moment of, oh, you're just like us. You're not like other funders. That was a, it was very strategic and very by design. <laughs> very early days. And even still now, we made it as a new foundation, knowing that we wanted to do things differently from what quote unquote traditional philanthropy was doing. And we really wanted to center community voice and nonprofit expertise. We made the really early decision of to, to not hire anybody from the world of philanthropy in the beginning. We exclusively for the first, gosh, three years, um, only hired people to build out our team that had experience in the nonprofit services sector as a leader. And so that our design conversations internally before we, start, we even had the capacity ourselves to bring in true community voice was coming from a perspective of what was the things that I would have wanted? What was the interaction that I would have wanted and truly felt beneficial and helpful from a foundation? Not here's best practice. We wanted to create something new and we wanted it to be driven by a perspective of lived experience and expertise inside of the nonprofit sector. So there's that. <laughs> and then to, to, to give my own spin on the question that you asked of what we would like to see if we were to talk about near, mid, and long-term goals, our near-term goals are to make our own direct grant-making practice as equitable as reflective, as authentic, and as effective as possible. 
our midterm goal would be to share all of that and to be questioned on it and pressed on it with our philanthropy peers and that we could band together and do some own our own philanthropic organizing in order to get other philanthropists on the bandwagon of centering community. And then the long-term goal is to actually really change the structure itself. So let's take each of those in order. We've talked a lot about how you think about equitable grant making, and there's a lot of talk in the sector about it. What are you seeing when it comes to equitable practices in the field? I think philanthropy is pretty broken um, overall. The What is considered to be quote-unquote best practice doesn't really center community in the way that it should. And philanthropy is, I really encourage philanthropy to turn the evaluation on themselves of how effective of a philanthropist are you? Not necessarily how effective are your are the nonprofits? Are they meeting their metrics and this and that and that and at, at achieving your own theory of change or your own theory of philanthropy? But how are you as a partner? Because that is one of, that it, that is possibly the biggest lever of change that we have inside of philanthropy. Philanthropy as a sector is, um, there's an unbelievable realm of possibility out there. We as a sector can be wildly creative in the things that we do, and yet the status quo is not that. And I get that there's a lot of things that are providing those pressures, but the reality is that a lot of those pressures are emotional pressures and they're not necessarily structural pressures. And as Magic Cabinet, as like a big overarching strategy, we're seeing ourselves and putting efforts in developing three complementary arms inside of our organization. The first one, which we've obviously started with, is our direct grant making practice, um, which is what we've talked about today for the most part, is how do we go into community and build relationship to get funds there in authentic ways, then in our cohort practice and uh, in the way that we engage community. But secondly, thinking about the potential of philanthropy, where we are and what we actually could do is incredibly exciting and in order for that to really be a major lever for philanthropy to really be a major level lever of change inside of our society, we have to start working together more. And we have to be influencing each other in ways that are positive, that are honest. We have to be sharing the things that aren't working. We have to be sharing the things that are working. We have to think about ways that we can partner with one another in, in supporting community. And even better, if we could pull in the government as well on different levels, that's that's really going to help us as philanthropy make the impact that is our duty. I was with a group of funders recently, and we were talking about participatory grant making, and everyone was sharing how they their version of participatory grant making is. And then they were like, how does your board vote on the proposals and things? And I was like, they don't. And so you could see everyone's face just get really perplexed there for a moment and they're like oh but what about this but what about they kept throwing all these scenarios at me I'm like they don't that's not their purview like they don't understand and they were really having a hard time like they were scratching their heads like physically scratching their head trying to figure out why was the board not involved in grant making decisions and weren't they afraid of our decisions and and the reality is I was like I don't let's talk about that let's figure out why that's such a concern for you it's not a concern for us, but it's a concern for you. And let's have that conversation about why that is. We are fortunate that 
And I was very selective. When I came into the foundation, I met with our donor and I was like, what do you believe in? Are these the things you believe in? Because I didn't want to work for a person that didn't have these same values. But if you work for a person that, that a team, that's their values, that's the way you can structure, it is a little bit more work, which is why we want to be helpful in the process of helping shepherd those that dialogue and having that conversation of how do we get them to understand how to share that power with the community. And I don't think that they understand that decision-making power is them actually not sharing power with community. And I don't think they get that. And we would love to be able to have that dialogue and be able to show. And so what we do now is we're hoping, we're getting to our first cycle, our first five-year cycles ending in, at the end of the year. And we're hoping to be able to share that story to tell people, like, it's not that scary. It's okay to give the power up and great things will still happen. And so we're trying to really flush out the messaging on that right now. But we're hoping to be a conduit to help have that conversation, to help people have that conversation. Part of the premise of this podcast is that actually there are different views of the world and ways of being in the world that influence the, the ways in which you think you can operate. And philanthropy, conventional philanthropy, is very much grounded in the same systems that many of us point at and say, well, this isn't working. It's highly capitalistic. It's highly about control with small groups of people. And it's not meant to be equitable, all that kind of thing. And it, it's just, I'm really curious, right, about whether you can transition, right? Can you alter and tweak conventional philanthropy enough? Or is it really just a shift at a certain point to say, no, we are going to do something really different. And what does it take to, to make that kind of shift into these more holistic indigenous values that allow you to see a very different notion and definition of what philanthropy is, who sits at the table, who doesn't, who has the power, et cetera. So no, I definitely appreciate that. And then the third arm of what we're trying to develop is is essentially an advocacy wing. We have our, our director of advocacy and we're in very early days of this, but really looking at what are the systems in place that are creating the environment that we have and how can we change them from a structural perspective so that philanthropy is held accountable, that philanthropy is more impactful, that funds do flow out of coffers at a higher rate, that more accountability is put on philanthropy, that more trust and more power is put in community. These are all really big questions that I don't necessarily have an answer to as of yet, but I think that ultimately these are the questions that we should be asking ourselves and the things that we should be trying to change. And that's going to take a long time. That's not going to happen overnight. Pieces. There's also an interesting sense of urgency. Like it could be 50 years before all this money goes out the door to help communities. And that feels like it's a really long way away. <laughs> so I'm curious, what are some of those, just your thinking, right? Your best thinking right now about the structures, the things that we would push on in terms of systemic levers to shift? To, I think that the most immediate and most important action that we, it needs to be the pressure that we can apply to our peers so that it's a, it shouldn't be a choice, but that they are making those choices in order to center community. And so if we're thinking about like the long-term goals of what an advocacy campaign might look like, it would be decentralizing that decision-making power from a traditional board and their responsibilities inside of a foundation with the community at the heart of it and at that, that decision-making process. We can look at DAFs, 
donor advised funds and see how astronomically successful they are. Like they really are successful by the measure of money, pe- money getting put into them and then accruing interest and they're donor advised. And so by design, it sits there until the donor says to say anything. What a question that we're kicking around inside of the organization is, what if we use that model, but then rather than the donor advising where it goes, the community advises where, where, where it goes. I don't know what that looks like, but if anybody wants to help us figure out what that looks like, please give us a call because we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're trying, to, we're trying to experiment with it in different ways. How can we use the systems that are set up imperfectly right now, but how can we use them to our advantage? And I think ultimately at the end of the day, we want a world in which the community actually gets to make the decisions about what it needs and not a small group of people. And there's a lot of different ways that we could go about that. Well, Tiffany, Christina, it was such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to join me and um, looking forward to keeping track of you and your work. Thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. I had a great time. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. Ulca.com.